Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We have been looking at the life of and the life and ministry of a man by the name of Elisha. He was a prophet of God who God used to do a number of really incredible things. There is so many miracles that God used and used Elisha to do, uh, bring healing to a number of people, uh, provide aid to many that needed it. And as we've been looking through the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, we've tried to make the parallels to how the example that we have of him corresponds to the life of every person that trusts in Christ, what our lives should look like. Because there's so many similarities that we see from the life of Elisha and what every single person should be doing, how they should be living. And this morning, we're actually not even going to be looking at Elisha. We're going to be looking at a story that he's going to be involved in, but we're not going to get to him just yet. Last week, we started looking at 2 Kings chapter 5, and we looked at just verse number 1 as we were introduced to a man in the story of Elisha by the name of Naaman. And we got introduced to Naaman, who, verse number 1, almost reads like a resume for this man, who had all these accolades, did incredible things, and... With all the great attributes that he had, the Bible says five words at the end of verse number one, which almost undercuts everything that he was known for. Because it says there in verse number one, at the very end of the verse, it says, but he was a leper. The man had leprosy. So among all the good things that he was able to do and how God had even allowed him to prosper as a military leader for the nation of Syria, the man had a leprosy. And as we are going to continue to build off of that, looking at the next six verses here in 2 Kings chapter 5, the message this morning is titled, Who God Uses. Who God Uses. Uh, there's many folks that think that they can only be used by God if they have a certain skill set, if they have a certain amount of capability. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll play the comparison game. Anyone ever done this where you compare yourself to someone else and you almost do it in a way to justify you not doing something or you not helping out or you not going somewhere because you think, well, you know, someone else will do it who's more equipped and more skilled than I am, so I'll leave it up to them to take care of because, I mean, who am I after all? And we, we often read about the story of the Good Samaritan, who is a man who was, there was a man who was traveling from one city to the next, he's beaten, he's left for dead, and several different people come by and see the opportunity to help a man who's clearly in need, but don't. Now, it's not necessarily that the individuals that passed by the man who was beaten and left for dead are thinking that, well, someone else is going to do it. They were more looking down on the individual and thinking that this wasn't for them to do. But there's often the case that we pass by individuals and pass by opportunities where God can use us, where we can be a blessing, where we can just be an encouragement to someone. But because we're not looking at it that way, or we think that someone behind us is more capable of being an encouragement, because after all, what can I say to this person who's in this particular situation to actually help them? So we just keep on going. And it's not always the case that there's going to be someone that's going to come after us. And maybe God has put you in the life of someone because he wants you to be that encouragement. And so this morning we're going to be looking at a series of verses here in 2 Kings chapter 5, focusing on a certain individual who doesn't necessarily pass the eye test. If we looked at this individual in person, if we checked at looked at all of the capabilities and all of the attributes of this person on paper, we probably wouldn't think, well, this is not probably the kind of person that God would use. But you'd be surprised 
at just who God uses. In a moment, we'll look at these verses here in, in 2 Kings chapter 5 because the people that God uses are not always the people that you would expect. But as we continue to look at the life and ministry of Elisha, we have been began laying the groundwork of Elisha's 10th miracle. And that's what's going to happen here in 2 Kings chapter 5. Again, we've identified that Naaman, who is a man who is very skilled, very accomplished, but has leprosy. He is the subject or the object of the miracle. He's actually going to be healed. Now, I've let you know in advance what's going to happen, but we haven't got to the how it's all going to happen yet. But because of this leprosy that he possesses, uh, he is unable to really do anything to cure himself. And last week, as we looked at this disease of leprosy, we correlated that to how sin is very similar to that of leprosy, how it makes us unfit to be in the presence of God. There needs to be an atoning work done. We need to be forgiven of our sins, and that forgiveness of our sins only comes through one means, and that is through believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is the only way that we're going to be saved and the only way that our sin is going to be paid for. Otherwise, we're going to be accountable for it and have to stand before God and bear account for everything that we've done. And God will punish us ultimately by throwing us into hell, which is basically what we tell God we want when we reject his Savior, our Savior. So as, as Naaman found out about his leprosy and what uh, needed to be done, which nothing that could be done from a human perspective, uh, he is going to see just how dreadful this condition is and has incapable of healing himself or even ridding himself from this terrible disease. And that is, again, the case of every sinner who is trying to remove the stain of sin from his life, which he cannot do. And I'm sure Naaman, here in chapter 5, exhausted every effort trying to bring healing to himself. I'm sure he sought out every doctor, every physician, every, sor every sort of uh, experimental drugs that would have been around during that time. He must have tried everything to try and get rid of this leprosy, but nothing worked. And he soon realized that no healing would ever be seen. And again, when it comes to our sinful condition before God, we must also realize that, again, there is no deliverance from our sin through anything that we're going to do on our own. There was no doctor that Naaman could visit, no matter the cost that could help. Nothing was going to be done. There was no ointment that he could apply to his body that would bring healing to his condition, even just outwardly to give off the impression that he was doing okay on the outside, even if his insides were just eating themselves away. And such is the case with every single person who hasn't trusted in Jesus as their savior. Every single person is a sinner. Our spiritual condition is so bad that no person can do anything to ever reverse it. We can no more deliver ourselves from the guilt and the defilement of our sin than we can just speak anything into existence. For crying out loud, we can't even get people to do what we want them to do. Uh, we, we, had a, we don't have a dog anymore, but we had a dog uh, at one point. And there were times where we, we let our dog out. Our dog's name was Mocha. And we let her out into the backyard, and the first thing she'd do is she'd chase after squirrels. And the squirrels would sit up in the tree, and they'd taunt her, and they'd jump from tree to tree, and she'd run through the backyard chasing every squirrel, you know, from the ground, of course, never coming anywhere near them, although she caught a few squirrels. Believe it or not, she was a, a hunter, a little miniature dachshund that could catch up with these squirrels. And I, I thought about getting a, a stake and putting the body of the squirrel on that and putting it in the backyard as a sign for all these squirrels that were taunting her, but I never went that far. I thought about it, but never went that far. But I can't even remember where I was going with this. There was, there was something that I was working on here. 
Um, it'll come to me this afternoon. Wow, that's really frustrating. There was really a method to it. Okay, regardless. Okay, we're moving on. When it came to leprosy, this was what God was pointing the nation of Israel to when he provided no remedy for this dreadful disease under the Mosaic law. He was leading them to see how there is nothing they can do to cure themselves from this ailment. I remember where I was going now. Okay. Pause. We'll come back. Okay. There are, when my dog was running around the backyard, it didn't matter how much I called for her name to come back in. We can't get her to come back in because she was so fixated on something and it was getting these squirrels that it didn't matter that I was calling her name. It's almost as if she forgot what her name was. We can't make things happen. We can't create things out of nothing. We can't even force people to do what we want them to do. And this is what God was trying to show the people here in Israel, that there is a dreadful disease, in a physical disease, in, in physical disease and leprosy that could not be cured. No matter what doctor you see, no matter how much money you spend to get any sort of experimental drugs, it wasn't going to be cured. And he was using this as an illustration to show them there, that there is a spiritual condition that every single person has because we're all born in sin and we all add our own personal sin and guilt to this life. And that nothing we can do is ever going to reverse that. And this is the message that he's given to the nation of Israel here. The, the priests, who were the ones who would decide whether or not a person was clean or unclean, they'd examine the body and see, okay, yes, you definitely have leprosy, so you're going to be banished so that you're nowhere around the community, so no one else gets this. They were given no instructions on how to heal a person from leprosy or even what to prescribe because there was nothing to do. The leper's healing, if there was going to be any, was left entirely up to God. If the person was ever going to be healed from this, only God could do it. All that the high priest could do was to examine the person and to, and to determine if he indeed had leprosy. And if he did, he was to be excluded from the congregation, from the camp of the Israelites. And he had to be in, basically living in a little colony outside of the region of the towns by himself, left for the Lord to deal with him. Either the Lord would heal him or the leprosy would kill him, but that's it. If the person was going to be healed, it would only come from God, just as it is with our salvation. The only way that we're going to be saved... It's through the working of Jesus Christ. There's no salvation for any single person apart from the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're never going to be able to work enough. You're never going to be able to be good enough to earn salvation on your own. There's no option B when it comes to getting to heaven. There's no back door into heaven. Jesus made it crystal clear. He said in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, he says, cometh unto the Father but by me. A sinner is either going to die in his sins and be condemned to hell or he will believe in Jesus Christ as his Savior and receive the eternal joys of heaven. That's it. One or the other. Only God is going to grant a person salvation, and he freely offers his precious gift to everyone that believes on Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only answer to man's sin problem and the only way that we're going to get to heaven. And sadly, there are many people in the world that think they're going to be saved because they have come to believe that God is all-inclusive, receiving into heaven people through all sorts of different avenues, which that would be wonderful, right? But that's not the way God does it. They will be met, these people, with the harsh reality that the God they're worshiping is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is incredibly rigid when it comes to how people are saved. But the good news is that God has made receiving salvation far simpler than what we've made it out to be. 
In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul and Silas, they're in prison. And the Philippian jailer, he comes up to them and he says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? What can I do to be saved? How do I get to heaven? He says. And they responded in verse 31 of Acts 16. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God may have only one way for a person to be saved, only one way for a person to be in heaven, but he has made it so simple enough for anyone to understand and anyone to believe. So many believers shy away from evangelism and soul winning because they think it's too difficult. You're always going to encounter people who don't want to hear what you have to say, but don't ever think that the message of the gospel is too difficult to share. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone that, uh, that you share the gospel with is going to be saved, that everyone is going to trust in Jesus as their Savior, but don't complicate the message thinking that you need to add anything to what God has already made so simple. Are you a sinner? Do you understand the consequences of your sin? Do you know that Jesus came, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried in the tomb, that he rose again on the third day for the punishment of your sins? Would you like to accept his gift of grace and believe on him as your Savior? That is literally as simple as it is. It's as simple as believing on Jesus Christ as your Savior. That your sin was punishable by death, and not just physical death, but eternal death and separation from God in a place called hell. But Jesus Christ came because he loved each and every one of us so much that he took all of our sin upon himself, went to the cross, died on the cross, paid for all of our guilt on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and then rose from the grave three days later, which signified that he conquered the punishment of death and sin so that if we believe on him, he's our savior. He's good enough for us. It's as simple as that. Believing that Jesus is enough for you. So don't complicate what God has made simple. Certainly, once a person is saved, there's a lot of discipleship that we, uh, that we hope that they see so that they get to know more about this God who loved them so much that came and died for them. But the most important part is that people believe on Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is the picture that we really see with Naaman here in 2 Kings chapter 5 as we identified him as the subject of Elijah's, or Elisha's 10th miracle. So he's, he's the subject of the miracle, but notice also, second, really, the contributor of the miracle. The contributor of the miracle. And it's interesting to see how God used different individuals to contribute to each of these miracles that he would work through the prophet Elisha. There wasn't a specific type of person that God was looking for. There wasn't a checklist where he was see seeing, okay, who meets up with every point of this checklist to see whether or not they're going to be used by me. He uses almost anyone and what makes it even more interesting, because the contributor to this miracle, from any human perspective, shouldn't have been involved. If we were trying to come up with a list of individuals that would have been involved in a miracle where an individual is healed from an incurable disease, we probably would have chosen the best and the brightest, the most, uh, most technologically advanced people. But look at what we read in verse number 2 of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse number 2, the Bible says, And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. During a time when the nation of Israel was steeped in idol worship, God allowed an enemy nation, who is the Syrian nation that is being referred to here in 2 Kings chapter 5, 
to come in and to take away captives from Israel. They basically came and conquered. And as they're conquering, they're taking away spoils and they're taking away captives. And here is this little maid who is forced to live and work in the household of Naaman in Syria. God had allowed them to come in and do this because God's name in Israel was being blasphemed. And God had punished the Israelites through defeats suffered at the hands of Syria. Evidently, as the Syrians, again, were dividing all their spoils, this little maid, this girl, falls into the hands of Naaman and she's going to be working as a maid in his household. We took some time last week to look at Naaman's resume there in verse number one. But I want you to look at how Naaman stands out from this little maid, the differences between them. So back in verse number one, Naaman is called a great man. It says, now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. We're told of this girl in verse number two that she's a little maid. Back in verse number one, the second word in verse number one says, now Naaman, we actually get the man's name. All we're told of this girl in verse number two is that she's a little maid. We don't even get her name at all. It's never recorded. We're told again in verse number one that Naaman was a captain of the host of Syria, while the little maid was a captive in the land of Syria. Naaman was a leper. And God would use this little maid, strangely enough, to be a contributing instrument in his healing. Now, is this not consistent with how we've seen God work thus far. The means God uses and the people God uses are rarely means and people that we would have ever expected. I find this incredibly encouraging because God is showing us that he uses weak people. He uses feeble people. All of these people who don't meet up to the world's standards of accomplishment. God uses to accomplish his will, and often in ways which seem completely strange or even backwards to the way that we would think things need to get done. God can use anyone. How many times have we passed up an opportunity to witness to someone, to serve in some capacity, to minister to a person in need, to volunteer, to help out in some way, to do anything because we felt ill-equipped in some way. Now, obviously, I understand that some people have legitimate physical limitations, but there are plenty of us who look around and think that there is someone else more qualified than us more skilled to do something that perhaps the Lord is calling us to do. Let me encourage you, if the Lord is calling you to do something, he is also going to equip you for what needs to be done. God doesn't bring us to a place and then push us out of the door, out of the door and say, good luck. I hope you know enough. I hope you can figure out how to do what's next. The same people God uses, he also prepares but they're only going to be used if they've made themselves available to him. So picture the scene with me. It was a normal, peaceful day in Israel where this little maid lived until the sounds of some invading army could be heard as they're marching through the land. The Syrians had come, and now there's really no one to stop them because at the time, they are the world power. God was not intervening on behalf of Israel. He was not going to stop the Syrians from invading. He was not going to stop them from plundering uh, the, the nation of Israel because God was actually using them 
to punish Israel for all their wickedness. God allowed them to come in and to plunder and to carry away captives from Israel. And among the captives was this little maid. That may not mean a whole lot for us, but think about what it would have been like back then. To those homes that were being plundered, to the families that were all being ripped apart. When this little girl was taken captive, her parents must have been devastated. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to have this army coming in and essentially breaking down the wall or the door of my home and taking my children away. But either way, we're not told exactly how old the little girl was, but we know she wasn't old enough to live on her own. And we know that she was taken from her family. Parents, imagine what it must have been like. Put yourself in, in the shoes of her parents when this happened. Imagine what it was like for the girl to be carried away and to be ripped apart from her parents and her family and taken captive into a foreign country. Now, we don't even want to imagine what that must have felt like because it's far too uncomfortable for us to think about it. Because there was nothing they could do to stop it. And there are so many questions we can ask about the situation, so many questions we end up asking God when we're faced with a sudden tragedy or a calamity. Maybe we might ask God, you know, what did I do to deserve this? Why has this happened to me? Why, God, have you allowed my home to be devastated? I think about it from the girl's perspective. Why have you taken me away from my family? Why have you brought me into this strange land? Why am I now a servant in someone else's home? Now, it is true that we don't always get the answers to our questions, but rest assured, God is working something even in the midst of the chaos in your life. He's allowed it to happen for a reason. As we'll see shortly, it was God's intervention that this girl would end up exactly where she is in the home of Naaman so that she might be the link in the chain which would end not only with Naaman getting healed from the leprosy, but I believe most likely the salvation of his soul as well. And here's the lesson I want you to get from this. God has the luxury of not being bound by time or by space so that he can see everything that is going to happen and still remains in control of all that is happening. Even when perplexing and gut-wrenching trials may come upon us, God has a good reason and there is a lesson for us to learn. Most of the time, his reasons may not be revealed to us right away because if he told us everything in advance, we'd have no reason to ever have faith in him. There's a reason that you're dealing with the issues that you're facing today. And I don't know what your issues are, but I'm sure every one of us have different issues. If I went around the room and asked you what you're dealing with, we'd all have something different that we'd say. But there's a reason that you're dealing with what you're dealing with today. And it may be that God is trying to get your attention, that God is trying to get you to recognize your need for him so that you might believe on him and be saved. It may be that God is trying to remind you that he's the one that you need to be relying on every single day. If you've trusted in God for your salvation, for your eternity, why not trust in him for the day-to-day -day things, which are much smaller? He's maybe trying to get our attention for us to realize that he is the only means of true and lasting peace in this world. 
So start looking at the problems and the trials in your life through a different lens. But God had a reason for this little maid to end up in Syria, in the household of Naaman. And notice what we read in verse number 3. Verse 3 says, And she said unto her mistress. So this is the little maid saying to Naaman's wife, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. I'm always amazed reading this verse. Now think about the, the girl's heart and how compassionate she is even in the most unfortunate circumstances. Based on the fact that she's a captive, she's, she's held against her will. She's not there by choice. She was ripped apart from her family, dragged to a foreign country, and is forced to serve in the house of strangers against her will. And she's so incredibly compassionate. She's literally saying to Naaman's wife, and she knows that Naaman has this incurable disease. She says, you know what? If only he'd go to Samaria. If only he'd go to Israel, because there's a prophet of God in Israel that could actually cure him from this dreadful disease, which he's been unable to find any sort of cure from through every avenue that he has gone through. Now, based on the fact of her present condition, you would have thought that she would have had a bitter hatred for Naaman's wife and Naaman himself and the entire household. You would have thought that she would have been scheming different opportunities to escape and even inflict harm to her captors. But rather than having ill feelings towards her captors, this little maid is concerned about the health and the welfare of Naaman. She doesn't look at him and say, you had this coming. Boy, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, you thought you were so powerful coming in and conquering this little nation and taking me captive? Well, God has got something for you, bud. Now you're stuck with this incurable disease. I hope the rest of your life goes well. She doesn't say that. The fact that she shows concern for Naaman tells us that this girl was raised in a godly home where her godly parents planted seeds which are now springing up and bearing fruit in this girl's life. What we're seeing here is grace triumphing over the flesh, where the flesh would have looked upon Naaman's incurable condition and concluded that justice is being served. Grace looks upon his condition and extends an offer to help. I'll be honest, this little maid in the story, she puts every one of us to shame. Every one of us. I guarantee you, if that were me, oh, Naaman would be hearing it up and down day and night of how much he deserved every bit that he had coming to him. But she says, there is hope. There is hope because there is a prophet of God in Israel that can actually do something about this incurable disease. Think about how we've treated some of the people in our lives. Think about what our mindset was when life threw us a curveball and we ended up in an unfavorable situation. Did we not complain? Did we not think that we had been dealt with unfairly? Did we not feel that justice needed to be served to those who had contributed to us being in this unfavorable situation? Probably the last thing we were thinking about when we were dealt an unfavorable hand and situation, probably the last thing we were thinking about was, how can I be a blessing to someone else? 
especially the one who has done me harm and wronged me. But rather, the mindset is probably, well, what can I do to get even? What can I do to get back at the one who has wronged me? If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'd all admit that our first thought when an injustice has been committed against us is to get revenge. Even if we don't necessarily act on it, it's probably the first thought that comes to mind. What can I do to get back? How can I put this person in their place? How can I let them know that what they've done is wrong and really make them feel bad for what they've done? Certainly none of us here have experienced what the little maid in our story has experienced. But imagine if you had. We've all had different injustices done against us at some point in our lives, and there's probably more to come. But none of us have experienced anything close to what she's experienced, literally being ripped apart from your family and taken to be a captive and a slave in a foreign land. None of us have experienced that. I hope not. And I hope we never do. But sometimes we have petty things upset us. If someone gives us a look that even it wasn't a dirty look, but a look that we took the wrong way, sometimes we think, oh, what is that person thinking? Well, I'm going to make sure that they, you know, get a piece of, I give them a piece of my mind and put them in their place because I'm sure that look was directed at me. Something so simple sets us off. And here's this girl who's literally taken away from her family, from her parents, taken out of the home that she's grown up in, out of the country that she's lived in her entire life, and now she's in a foreign land having to deal with complete strangers and be a slave in this house. And she's not scheming. She's not trying to do everything to sneak her way out or to be you know, a hindrance or a nag or complain about what she's, what she's got going on. But rather, she's offering encouragement and an opportunity for a person who has an incurable disease to actually see some healing. Would any of us share the same response to our captors? If they were in a situation like that, this girl was being held against her will, forced to serve in this house, and yet there is no record of her complaining to God. Neither is there any bitterness that's shown in her character. Instead, she bears a faithful testimony to God as she was moved with compassion towards Naaman. Isaiah 24, 15 tells us, it says, Wherefore, wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires. Glorify the Lord in the fires. Well, easier said than done, right? The idea is when it's really coming on you, when life really is, is just falling apart and things are going completely crazy, glorify God. Still be a blessing. Easier said than done. Glorify and honor God even when life is crazy. Glorify and honor God when you're being mistreated and abused. We live in a world that is constantly getting worse. Every single day there are news reports of something more that has happened. Our lives seem to be surrounded by disappointments. And we're often wronged by those that God has put in our lives. What should our attitude be toward those around us? Well, if you're a Christian, it should be to glorify and to honor God no matter the circumstances because there are much bigger things at stake than you getting revenge and feeling good for about five minutes. Because let's be honest, when you get revenge, how... How long are you actually feeling good about what you've done? I mean, there's a momentary satisfaction, don't get me wrong. It feels good. But then that remorse kicks in. And you're thinking, man, 
I'm so glad I said what I said, but at the same time, ooh, I wish I could take those words back. And once they're out, you can't put them back. Now, I'm not saying that we should roll over and allow people to just walk all over us. But consider what you're doing and respond instead of react. This little maid ends up being one of the first missionaries because she was focused enough on God even when her circumstances were not favorable. And God was honored in how she would respond to her situation. I'm sure we can all attest to have said things that we wish we can take back. We do and say things sometimes without even thinking, but we're just reacting in the moment to what has just happened and immediately end up regretting it. I've done this more times than I can count. Reacting, which doesn't give you time to think about what is actually happening and what you're actually doing. And that's why responding is important because responding actually takes the time to consider what has just happened and what am I going to say or do in response. Sometimes people react so quickly that they end up directing their anger at the wrong person. You ever been there? Where you react so quickly because from your perspective, you think you see everything and you think you have all the facts and you react and you take it out on the wrong person only for them to say, I'm the victim here. That's the one you want. And then what? You can't take it back, right? It says a lot about us. When we can remain calm, even in the craziest of circumstances, and continue to trust that even in this, God still has a plan that is in place, even though everything around us seems to be falling apart. Now, this little maid informs her captors that there is a prophet back home in Samaria, in Israel, who can heal Naaman of this leprosy. And notice what we read in verse number four. Verse number four. So verse three, she has told the wife of Naaman that there is a prophet back in Samaria that could recover him of this leprosy. And notice verse four, it says, and one went in and told his Lord saying, thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Now, we can read through this verse pretty quickly without considering all that it says, but it says quite a bit, actually. Back in verse number two, we're told that the maid waited on Naaman's wife, which would have been the mistress that she spoke to in verse number three, who would have given, I mean, honestly, when you think about it, this, this little maid is a captive from a foreign land. Who would have really given much thought to the words of a captured servant? especially one that is being held against her will. You know, again, you, you try and think about the logical scenario here. And if Naaman's wife is hearing this from this little maid, again, who is living in the household, but she's serving in the household, taken captive, she may have thought, you know, oh, really, I'm sure that there's a prophet back in your own hometown that can cure my husband of this dreadful disease. I bet there is. And what would you have him do? March all the way back over to Israel and essentially offer himself up to be healed by this prophet? What, are you going to have him you know, march right into a trap, set everything up so that there's an enemy waiting to surround him and then kill him because of everything he's done to your people? I'm sure there's a prophet in Israel that can help him from this dreadful disease. Is that how she responded to the girl, though, in verse number three? Look again at what it says in verse number four. I know I just read this, but look again. So the little girl says in verse number three, would God, my Lord, were, the, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And the next thing we read 
is that one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Next thing we know, the message is coming to Naaman himself. So the wife hears the message from this little girl and doesn't immediately have like alarm bells going off in her head saying, This little girl's up to something. She's an enemy of ours, and she's going to try and send us back into a foreign land where we just went and spoiled them. Because she's probably thinking that she can set up some sort of a trap or there's going to be something waiting for Naaman to be killed. But she doesn't think that at all. Not only is the girl not ignored, immediately they go and bring the news to Naaman. Now I'm sure that Naaman has done everything he can. I'm sure he's visited all the best doctors in Syria. I'm sure he's done everything that money could ever buy. But all the attempts of healing had all come up empty. Syria was basically the world power at this time. So if there was any doctor that was ever going to bring him any sort of healing, it would have been there in Syria. And Naaman had probably accepted, after trying everything out and leaving no stone unturned, he'd probably accepted the fate that he's never recovering from this. It's a lost cause. But the fact that this girl's words are actually taken seriously says a lot about her testimony during the time that she was a captive in Naaman's household. You don't take seriously the word of a captive servant unless they have proven themselves trustworthy. And think again about what she's saying. It's an incurable disease. It's not as if he's suffering from a cold and they've run out of medicine and they're in Syria. And she says, listen, we still have stockpiles of medicine back in Israel. Go back there. You can get what you need. They'll fix you right up. She says, for this incurable disease which you've already spent all of your money on, and you've talked to every doctor here in Syria, you've gone through every experimental testing that can be done here in Syria because here are the best doctors here. I've got a solution for you. Oh, I bet you do. But they don't think of it that way. Somehow this girl has become so trustworthy that everything she has to say, they think, maybe there's something to this. And so they go and they bring the word to Naaman. We also can't overlook God's hand in all of this. We don't do this enough today. We don't pay attention to how God is involved in the day-to-day things. We look around at this world and everything that is being done, and, and rather than acknowledge God's working in everything, we give credit to the self-sufficiency of man. All around us, are people who are literally living off of everything that God is supplying without giving a single thought of how much they should appreciate God in their lives. The very air that you are breathing into your lungs right now has been supplied to you by God. The fact that you were able to even roll out of bed this morning and have the strength to be in church this morning is a testament to God giving you what you needed to be here. Your body was given to you by God. The Bible says he literally knits us all together even when we were still in our mother's wombs. He gives us the strength to move and to function and to do everything that needs to get done over the course of the day. We live under the very blanket of God's divine protection and provision where he's sparing us from all sorts of trouble, providing for us all sorts of things from day to day, and then we continue to operate as if he doesn't exist at all. We borrow everything we need to live and exist from God without ever considering the source 
We readily receive all the gifts that he bestows and lose sight of the giver behind those gifts. God has given you ears to hear his truth. He's given you a mind to understand who he is and what he's done for you. God gives us the ability to respond to his offer of salvation by believing on Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again on the third day to give you victory over all of that sin and to be saved and to have a home in heaven. But it is up to us to respond in faith to what he has done, believing that Jesus has done everything for you, that he's paid the full price, and believing that he is the promise, that he gives us the promise for this home in heaven. God has given us the ability to respond to him, just like he gave all those around the little maid here in our story, and the ability to respond to what she had to say. And fortunately, we see that the words of this little maid, they made it all the way to Naaman who would eventually go to meet with the prophet Elisha and be healed of his leprosy. But we also see how God is pleased to use the little and those things that are despised. Because the Bible does tell us there in verse number two, it was a little maid. This whole story is about a little maid in captivity. Considering her situation, who would have thought that she would be found serving the Lord? Considering her age, her nationality, her current situation, who would have been inclined to listen to what she had to say? And yet, because she didn't look upon her situation with frustration, she served as an excellent testimony as she bore witness to those captors. And her simple message would eventually reach the ears of the king of Syria. I pray that the Lord would help us to remain faithful in him wherever he is, wherever he has placed us. And look at what we read in verse number five. So it, verse number four, it makes it to Naaman, the word does. And in verse number five, it says, And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. You can't help but see the hand of God in this as well. All of this is being done based on the word of this little maid. The maid spoke to Naaman's wife. Naaman's wife relayed the message to some messenger who then delivered the news to Naaman. Eventually, the same message makes it all the way to the ears of the king of Syria. And he's willing to do anything accepting the news as being legitimate. We don't know exactly how many messengers were used to, to bring the news to the king. But no one along the chain ever stopped to consider that this news was nonsense. Hey guys, guess what? There's this little girl who claims to have a secret as to how to get cured from leprosy and there's a prophet in Israel who supposedly has the power to do it. Go and pass the word on. Let's make sure the king hears about this. No one along that chain thinks that this is absolute nonsense. They keep going and delivering the message until it makes it to the king and the king himself doesn't think it's nonsense. And on top of that, the message remained consistent the entire time. Have any of you ever played the game telephone before? My kids love playing that game. One person starts with a message and they'll whisper it into the ear of the next person and he's supposed to go and whisper it and whisper it and whisper it all the way down the line. And if you have enough people, the message really changes by the time it gets to the end, right? Sometimes it's not even resembling at all what the original message was. And I love this because we may not know how many messengers there were, but as they're basically playing this game of telephone, the message remains consistent the entire time. 
It makes it to the king's ears, and it's the same message. God started this process when this little maid was taken captive. He continued it through how she faithfully served the household of Naaman because she has to build up a trustworthy reputation. It's not day one on her, day as, or her, her time as being a captive that she says, oh, wait, let me tell you about this way that you can be healed. They're never taking her word for anything on day one, but she built up a trustworthy reputation, and God was using her in this time to get to that point so that when she was moved to deliver this message to Naaman, that it would actually be trustworthy and accepted. And then God used messenger after messenger to get the word to the king, and then he worked through the king himself. God is working at both ends of the line. God not only gives the message to the messenger, but he opens the heart of the recipient so that they actually might receive it. So we've seen how the little maid was the contributor to the miracle, but notice third, the misapprehension of the miracle. The misapprehension of the miracle. Verse number five, it says there again, And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. Now the Lord had a reason for the king to act this way. The little maid said nothing at all about the king of Israel being involved. And yet the king of Syria says that he's going to send a letter to the king of Israel as he sends Naaman to go get healed. All that the maid said was that there was a prophet in Samaria who could recover Naaman of his leprosy. No mention of the king of Israel. And as we will see, it would have served Naaman better had he just focused on the words of the little maid, for he would have been spared needless trouble, but we'll get to that later. And yet, though, how true to life this is. Do we not complicate so much of what God has made simple? There are so many people who teach that you need to be good enough to earn salvation. You need to be good enough to be allowed into heaven. But will anyone ever be good enough? Will anyone ever be good enough to get into heaven? No. Who is the judge of good enough? What if we do something wrong? Does that cancel out all the good that we've accumulated up through our lifetime? The questions we could ask are endless. And if this is the way that you're living, hoping that you're going to be good enough, i got to be honest with you, it is the most miserable way to live. Because every day you're going to be wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Who's going to be the judge as to what's good? My definition of good may be different than whoever is the judge of all this good. Have I ever done enough? Jesus stated very simply in John 5, 24, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Very simply, the message of the Bible is this. Believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior and you shall be saved. You shall be saved immediately. You shall be saved eternally. God has made it simple because, with all due respect, he knows how dumb we are on our own. And how we always try to complicate things. This is what we see with the king of Syria doing here in verse number 5. Again, it says, The king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. The value of all this gold and all this silver today would be valued somewhere between seventy dollars and $100,000. It's quite a lot of money. But again, there was nothing mentioned by this little maid regarding 
go to Israel, see the prophet, and pay him $100,000, and then you'll be cured. Nothing of that sort. Knowing nothing about the grace of God, which the grace of God is a free gift, Naaman was prepared to pay generously for his healing. Again, so true to life this is. So many people think that God's gift of salvation and our home in heaven needs to be purchased or needs to be earned. But if that's the case, it's no longer a gift. Right? If you're having to earn your way there, it's no longer a gift. If you're having to buy your way there, it's no longer a gift. If God were selling off stakes and parcels of land in heaven, it would be now payment for services rendered. But the Bible tells us over and over and over again that salvation is a gift that is freely given to God. The only thing we have to do is to accept it, and you accept it by believing that Jesus Christ is your Savior. That you can't do enough on your own, but that He's done everything for you. The truth is that God knows none of us will ever be good enough, and that is why He doesn't require something of us that He knows none of us will ever be able to achieve. He freely offers salvation to everyone who will believe on Jesus Christ as his Savior. And finally, notice number four, the setback of the miracle. The setback of the miracle. Look quickly at verses six and seven here in 2 Kings chapter five. It says, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel. So the king of Syria has written this letter. Naaman has the letter. And he goes and he brings it to the king of Israel, saying, now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Now the reaction of the king of Israel goes to show why God was using the nation of Syria to punish Israel in the first place. It made sense for the king of Syria to act as he did, where he is sending Naaman with all sorts of money and all sorts of valuable things, and even a letter. But the king of Israel should have known better. The king of Syria is not a godly man. He doesn't know about the things of God. He doesn't care about the things of God. The king of Israel should have known about the things of God. So it makes sense that the king of Syria is doing this, thinking that he's going to have to pay this man off to do something. And rather than throwing himself at the mercy of God, the king of Israel, and seeking God's help in this matter, he acts like a fool and thought only of himself. What can I do to help this man? Am I God to be able to cure a man from leprosy? Is what he says. What a contrast between the king of Israel and the little maid as far as their conduct is concerned. The king is a monarch upon a throne while she is a captive in a foreign land, and yet she is more concerned about the welfare of her master while he, the king, is only thinking about himself. She had unwavering faith in God and spoke of God's prophet who could actually bring healing to Naaman, whereas the king never once thought of God's prophet as the answer to his problem. He doesn't get the letter from Naaman, which is originally from the king of Syria, and say, ha, no, I know what you're looking for. You're actually looking for Elisha. You're not looking for me. Let me show you where you can find the man that you actually need to talk to. He instead responds this way. In verse 7, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man to send me to recover a man of his leprosy? Who said that you're going to do this? But he's only concerned about himself and never once thinking about God. Had the king of Israel sought God 
His fears would have been quieted and he would have never, he would have never had this issue come up. He would have been reassured that everything was okay, but he was a stranger to God and evidenced no faith even in the idols that he worshipped based on how fearful he was. There are many times where we get overwhelmed when something big is asked of us. And we'll often respond by insisting that we're not capable of completing such a task. That it is well beyond our power to do. Many people think that they should even be commended for acknowledging their own personal weaknesses. When in reality, what we're often doing is voicing our own unbelief. Certainly, there are going to be things that we will not be able to do, but we often use our insufficiency as an excuse to get out of doing things that we know we should be doing. Some of us never bother asking God for help with what we deem a difficult task. And we just wave the white flag and give up. Is our view of God that low? that we can't even ask him for help before we throw in the towel and give up? The Bible tells us that God's grace is sufficient for us. It's enough, enough for everything that we're going to need and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So if anything, when you're realizing your own limitations, when you're realizing your own shortcomings, you should be going straight to God and saying, God, now's your time to shine. Because now I'm looking my absolute weakest. So if this, every, so if this is ever going to get done, it is only going to be by your strength that it's going to get done. Someone once said, feeble knees and feeble hands bring no glory to God. Challenges are sure to come up in life. But God can use you. God can use you if you're willing to be used by him. Rest assured that God knows your frame. He knows what you're capable of, what you're not capable of. He will give you the strength to do what you think you couldn't do. And if he's called you to a specific task and for a specific purpose, he is going to equip you to get it done. Because God fully equips those whom he uses. The greatest ability is availability. So be available to be used by God. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're just thankful that, Lord, as weak, frail, and feeble as we are, Lord, you know exactly what we need to get done what you've called us to do. Give us your strength day to day. And Lord, may we always see your hand in the things that are being done so that we can give credit to where it is due. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we